You're listening to the Entrepreneur Ignited Podcast. Where you'll get proven strategies to start and grow your online business from in the trenches digital entrepreneurs. EntrepreneurIgnited.com. Launch your online business. Live your dreams. Now, here's your host, Derek Gale. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ignited Podcast, a podcast designed to skip the hype, skip the BS, and just bring you guys real actionable tips and strategies to help you grow your business and income on the internet. This is your host, Derek Gale, and today we're going to be diving deep into a topic that, eh, you know what, every digital entrepreneur should be paying attention to, but let's be honest, nobody really wants to, and uh, that is the laws surrounding online advertising and protecting yourself from the dreaded FTC. And to give us a crash course, our guest today is not only one of the most sought-after internet marketing attorneys in the online business community, he's also the CEO and co-founder of a website called FTC Guardian, where he coaches and consults with countless online businesses, ensuring we're not making the mistakes that, you know, to be frank, could potentially cost us our businesses. So without further ado, I want to welcome Chip Cooper to the show. Chip, thanks for joining me here today. Well, thanks for having me, Derek. Looking forward to kicking some of these issues around involving the FTC and online businesses. Yeah, and you know, I, and I, it is one of those things that you know people jump into online businesses. It's a bit of even today, it's a bit of the wild west, and I don't think people put enough uh, thought into some of the regulatory issues and compliance things that they need to be paying attention to. So, hopefully, by the time we're done this interview today, they're going to have a much better insight into what it is they need to be thinking about and doing. Um, so to kick things off, uh, you know, it seems like there's more news and uh, media lately about the FTC going after online businesses and online marketers. And uh, what, what's your take on that? Well, the take is you're right. There is a lot of news relative to what's happened in the fairly recent past. But before we get into that, which is obviously very, I think, important. Let's just take a minute to understand exactly what the FTC is. What do they do? What are they about? Why are they there? Why do we even need to think about them and have this call, right? So mm -hmm. uh, the Federal Trade Commission is the uh, U.S. agency uh, that is the, the preeminent U.S. agency that is there to protect consumers from scams, uh, and for, dis for from deceptive uh, marketing practices, basically. It's been around a long time, lo much longer than the Internet has been. And so um, here's the question that your listeners need to answer, and I'm guessing that most of them will answer yes to that if they're involved to the question, if they're involved in an online business. And the question is this, do you sell um, products or services to consumers who are located in the United States, or if you're not selling to them, do you simply collect information from them, such as a squeeze page where you collect typically a, a, a first name and an email address? So are you selling or collecting information to consumers? And that would include anyone who has a home-based business because the FTC views them as consumers, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're selling to consumers located in the U.S., then you are subject to the jurisdiction of the Federal Trade Commission and their efforts to protect consumers from deceptive marketing practices. And a very important point to be made 
uh, is that it doesn't matter where you're located, where the seller is located. You can be in Vancouver, you can be in Europe, you can be anywhere. As long as you're selling into the U.S. to consumers, then the FTC has jurisdiction. So that's that's an important fact to understand mm. as, as a beginning point, right? And then to your question, um, yes, there has been a big upswing in new regulations and also aggressive enforcement of pre-existing and new regulations. And the key year, the key date to remember is 2009, because prior to that time, there wasn't a lot of regulation and enforcement. The primary idea was that the uh, that 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 industry self-regulation would sort of take care of things. And we didn't want to over-regulate the internet because it might harm the entrepreneurial nature of it, right? Well, in 2009, the Federal Trade Commission decided that that approach was not working. And (laughs) And it wasn't. (laughs) I I mean, to their satisfaction. In fact, as I think you mentioned uh, the the prior to 09, a lot of people reviewed as uh, regarded as the wild wild west, right? Mm-hmm. So in 09, everything changed. It'll never be the same. So we see a huge upswing in new regulations, and and of course the FTC follows the development of technology, particularly uh, the the predominance of social media and and uh, mobile devices, you know. And, and so they discover all sorts of things happening that they don't like. Consumers are scammed. And so they jump in and try to figure out a way to regulate. So they're chasing along behind the technology development and what marketers are doing. Mm-hmm. So beginning, beginning in 09, we've had this, what I call a tsunami of new laws and regulations. And then more recently, probably around the 2014 timeframe, uh, there was a different focus where the FTC started drilling down to the smaller online businesses. Prior to that time, they were going after Google and Facebook and Twitter and the bigger guys. So those are the basic trends. Okay. So uh, here's the the, the question that that is always in my mind is, you know, the FTC, well, first of all, how big is the FTC? How many lawyers do they have on council? Do you have any insight into that? You know, I really don't know. They have a number of regional offices. Their uh, their main office, of course, is in Washington D.C. Federal mm-hmm. Trade Commission building. They've got a standalone building there, and they have a number of offices. I was uh, I lived in Atlanta for thirty years, and there's a regional office there. Mm-hmm. And it, guessing there are probably five or six regional offices, just the way you see for the the Securities and Exchange Commission has regional offices. But you know, I don't really know. That's a good question. I'll just have to look it up after the call, but I don't know how many staff lawyers they have. I know this. They claim that they're understaffed. Yeah, uh, they always have. They always have. I've always heard that they're understaffed. And and I remember, I guess it was three years ago, uh, after a legal conference that I attend every year to keep keep up with all the changes, one of the speakers was Peter Miller, who at that time was the chief of the privacy division of the Federal Trade Commission. He had just given a presentation um, to this group of uh, probably 300 attorneys who all practice in the internet area. And so I followed him out into the area outside the speaking room and asked him a bunch of questions. And he said, you know, gosh, we're swamped, we're, we're, we're under, underfunded and overworked. You know, that's the typical uh, bureaucrats. <laughs> 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 Nobody loves us, we're underfunded, overworked. 
And at that time, I might mention, though, I said, you know, you're the privacy guy. Now, he's not there anymore. He left and he's in private practice, I think, with a big firm in Washington, D.C. Um, but I said, what is your biggest concern right now? And I was expecting him to say uh, all the something about privacy. Privacy policies are too complicated, blah, 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 or whatever. And he shocked me when he started saying the biggest concern at that time, this was, what, 2013, 2014, uh, is affiliates. Mm -hmm. He said they go they go crazy. They're 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 compensated only on, based on conversions, and they have no discipline. They're over the top. They say anything, mm -hmm. and we've got to find a way to regulate them. And they've done that. And I'll I'll tell you about that a little bit later if you're interested about how they're going how they're going about doing it. Well, and I'm definitely because actually one of the questions on my list here was about affiliate marketing because uh, you know affiliate. Uh, again, you go to any – it blows my mind right now. If you go to, for example, CNN and you see all the, the sponsored listings on, on big media websites right now that are leading to affiliate offers that are making absolutely ludicrous and outrageous health claims, biz op claims, stuff like that, 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 that they, you can see that it's obviously a scam leading to a real product. But those are the affiliates that are, that are the middleman. So – um, one of the questions I had for you is, is obviously, how, how do they plan to regulate that? And, and who's accountable? And who is the FTC holding accountable for affiliate advertising? It, are they going to hold the merchants accountable or the affiliates? Yeah, both. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> great, great questions. Here's what, here's what happened. Um, obviously, the, the Federal Trade Commission doesn't have specific statutory uh, guidance and regulations. They have to, they've got principles involved in the Federal Trade Commission Act. They have principles about, uh, about they've established precedent about what a deceptive marketing practice is and, and certain general principles. And then they have to apply these to very specific situations and win cases to get precedent to then go after other people. So they have to slowly build their precedents by applying pre-existing principles to new things like uh, marketing on social media, for example, or affiliate marketing, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But getting closer to your point, um, obviously at the time I spoke to Peter Miller in 2014, they were pulling their hair out with what was happening at the lowest level of this chain of distribution, right, involving affiliates, which are the affiliates themselves. Mm -hmm. And and they were they were suing them, but it was not satisfactory in terms of how do you regulate affiliate marketing overall, right? Mm -hmm. it, you know, you can chase these little guys around. Some of them aren't so little. And, and you can nail some of them, but, you know, the, you know, there's just a lot going on. So the only way that they can regulate is to regulate throughout the chain. And when I say the chain, I mean uh, affiliate platforms at the very top of the chain. You know, online platforms that bring merchants and affiliates together. And I'm not going to name them, but you probably know two or three that are fairly well known. They yeah. bring affiliates and, and merchants together. And so there's certain... Uh, responsibilities now based on a case that was decided only last year that the affiliate platform can be liable for the affiliates that that work in the platform right right and then and then down the line or the chain is the affiliate manager or the merchant you know whoever's managing these affiliates this party is also responsible for monitoring what his or her affiliates are doing Mm -hmm. And if they are out of line, they need to be 
they need to be uh, told what to do, or if, if they want get in line with compliance, they need to be terminated. Mm-hmm. So, so they're looking for management from the top down mm-hmm. to solve the problem. And if they can force that, you know, on the affiliate marketing community, then they can affect what they believe to be fair, um, you know, uh, regulation. But the problem is they've got to get the message out throughout the chain that that behavior has to change. You know, affiliate managers have to monitor their affiliates. They have to discipline them. And the same goes for the platforms. And right now, very few managers know this and very few, if any, platforms know it because I talk to these guys. Mm -hmm. So... So there's, you know, there's the legal, pre- I mean, you know, I talked to one just the other day and I said, look, what I'm telling you now, three or four years ago was a best practice. You know, it was a best practice to monitor your affiliates. And the guy sort of laughed, <laughs> right? <laughs> Here you go. Yeah. Are you kidding me? And I said, okay, it was a best practice three or four years ago. Now it's a legal requirement. You probably don't know it, but it is. Yeah. I mean, it, it's all happened in the last two or three years where the FTC has chipped away and now has the legal precedent to bring these lawsuits. So there's an education problem here that, you know, a lot of players need to understand that the game has changed. So, I mean, it's an education problem. And I guess, how, how do people get the education? Like, is the FTC publishing this somewhere? Are they pushing it out? How, yeah. How, so they, it's, they have a website um, and they issue they, – they have all sorts of things that they believe are, you know, uh, intended and, and, and rightfully intended to educate the public. But we all know that it's not adequate, right? It's just yeah. not. But one of the things they do is um, they, they discover what they think is a potential issue or set of issues – and they hold conferences and they invite industry people in to discuss what possible regulation might be reasonable and what might be unreasonable. And then they sit around and figure out, you know, what they think they want to do. And then they issue a report. Right. Mm-hmm. And this happened very recently in the area of lead generation. Right. Mm-hmm. It happened a few years ago in the area of native ads. Right. Mm -hmm. And then not long after that, you start having a report issued about exactly what the rules are on native ads. But it all started with an industry conference where industry leaders came in and could make their case about what was reasonable or not. And then based on that information, they made decisions. It also uh, is now in process in the area of big data and retargeted ads. Yeah. Um, There've been a, a couple of reports on that. And so we can look forward to. Uh, some pretty serious regulation, I believe, coming down at the top of the chain, which are data brokers up there. Um, they're basically unregulated now. And the, one of the concerns of the Federal Trade Commission is that very few people understand that data brokers even exist. In fact, I, I, there's hardly anybody at the consumer level who's ever heard of them. Yeah. And when I talk to them, in fact, I've written a book about it. You know, and, and I was at a speaking to a group about two weeks ago when I described what the data brokers do and how they use data mining to create inferences and target people and sell these inferences to marketers for retargeted ads purposes. They, they were shocked that their data is being bought and sold at that level, mm-hmm. right? And so the FTC is now working its its way. You know, it had a, it had a conference. It's issued a couple of reports. 
in the next year or two, there's going to be some pretty serious regulation coming down. So that's how it happens. But to your point and your question, you know, all of it's going to be published on the FTC website. They do issue press releases when these reports come out. You can download them. They're PDF files, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it also trickles down into the trade press. You know, you go online and, you know, the, there are people that follow advertising, particularly FTC developments, and they'll write an article about something new that's come down. Mm-hmm. But in the final analysis, it still takes time for it to really trickle down. And, and it's just and, – and the problem is there are a lot of players who don't get the word or still think it's the wild, wild west – or don't want to know, right? <laughs> and, and so they're the ones who are most at risk because the FTC, once they decide to start bringing cases, you know, they're relentless about it. Yeah. So if you don't know what you don't know or don't want to know, you're, you're sort of, you're setting yourself up for a potential claim. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I've watched it evolve over the years and, you know, I know the laws are there, and, and I keep I keep up on the laws. But I look at you know the thousands of people I work with. These, most of these people are small businesses or individuals or just getting started online. I mean, they don't have the bandwidth nor nor the capacity to read through the documents on the FTC and actually understand what most of those mean. So. Um, you know, it makes sense that they're pushing it to the, you know, in the case of affiliates, they're pushing it to the merchants, to the networks and stuff to to monitor that. But here's the question that is in my mind is I, I never see consistent and reliable enforcement. And so it's it's I think a lot of affiliates and online businesses almost look at, at it like a lottery and a lottery where your odds of winning it are better than your odds of losing it because – the FTC is not enforcing at a, a, any consistent rate. And I mean, I here's a question for you. I've looked at, you know, some of the cases they have taken, and then I look at some of the stuff that's going on, and I'm, I ask myself, how did they focus on this one when these guys over here are 10 times worse? Like, how does that work? Well, sometimes they actually bring – uh, cases against a group of offenders. Uh, mm-hmm. They've done it in the weight loss area. They've done it in biz ops and work at home, work at home uh, uh, offers. Uh, but you're right. I mean, they just are not staffed up to the point to be consistent in their enforcement. But sooner or later, um, they may get you. And, and, and I guess one of the big points to be made here is you're basically right. It's like a lottery. I mean, are you know, what are the chances that they're going to sue you? I would say not really good, but then it happens, right? Yeah. And and when it does, the consequences are so horrible. I mean, it's not like a normal civil uh, action lawsuit that you might generally be familiar with, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're in the business, you're always subject to maybe a competitor giving uh, suing you or a former employee or something like that. And the plaintiff, general, I mean, one of the general rules is the plaintiff has the burden to prove this claim, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and if the plaintiff is suing you uh, and you're operating in an entity such as an LLC or a corporation, then generally speaking, the plaintiff, if they carry the burden of proof, can only go to the assets in the entity. They cannot pierce that entity Easily, it's possible, but very difficult to pierce it and to go after your home and your bank accounts and and your car and all of that stuff, mm-hmm. right? So, 
So, you know, if, if you were thinking that that is the way the FTC works, you're sadly mistaken because they have powers to go straight to your bank accounts and freeze them. Yeah. Right. All of your personal assets, all they have to show is that you were involved in the marketing or you knew about it or you you managed it. And then they list you as a as an individual uh, defendant and you're jointly and severally liable for mm -hmm. millions of dollars in many cases. Right. And so and another thing is there have been some cases recently where the defendants there's one in particular, uh, a, a principal. Uh, of a company called Commerce Planet involved in a membership site with a continuity billing plan. This guy thought he could, um, the, the FTC, when they, when they file a lawsuit like this, they make an, an, a non-negotiable demand. And one of his, uh, one of his partners, I think took it, I think it was like almost a couple of hundred thousand dollars, I believe. Uh, but this other guy said, you know, I'm going to fight it. And he lost. And now he's, 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 he's hung with an $18.2 million judgment, mm -hmm. right? That goes to all of his personal assets, everything. Right. And so he finally decides, well, there's no way to get out from under this. So I'm going to declare bankruptcy and discharge it all and start over. And last year, the court ruled that he couldn't discharge it in bankruptcy because it's essentially a fraud claim and you cannot discharge fraud claims. So it's going to hang around him for a long time. So so here's the deal. As you say, it's not you, you know of a lot of people doing a lot of bad things and they haven't been sued yet. That doesn't mean they're not going to get. Yeah, sued. I totally agree. Yeah, next, I mean, you don't you don't know. But, yeah. And, 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 and again, it's probably not likely to happen soon. It could. But if it happens, it's terrible. It ruins your life. I mean, yeah. you, you cannot. I mean, it's, it's personal liability. So, yeah. so because it's so bad and so onerous, then the, the reasonable and rational thing to do is to make an effort to comply. And right. I agree. And I guess for, for the listeners, you know, I don't want them to think I'm saying, hey, guys, your odds are in your favor. Roll the dice. <laughs> that, that's not what I'm saying at all, because I've seen the full force of the FTC come down on businesses around me. And uh, right. and, and and you don't want to go there. I mean, I, I, they will take everything. And I've watched people lose homes. I've watched them lose every personal asset they have. Everything. Everything they've got. And, you know, we do webinars at FTC Guardian. And one of the things I say toward the end, I say, look, guys, um, you know, you can you can agree to assume certain risk. You're you're intelligent people and, and people have different tolerances for risk. And, and the example I use is let's say you're going on spring break and you're riding down the expressway and you're headed to your destination and you make a a decision that this that the speed limit is 70, but you're going to set cruise control at 80. And you know that you might get a speeding ticket, but you've decided that if you do, it's going to cost you probably a couple hundred bucks. But um, it's not going to ruin your vacation. <laughs> and you may have to pay a little more in your car insurance, right? But it's no big deal, and it's certainly not life-changing, and you've made the decision to take the risk. And, you know, that's just a risk. But the consequences of an FTC claim are so incredibly horrible. I mean, you're basically put down yeah. um, that, that you need to consider compliance, basically. Yeah. Right. And, and, and to that point as well, one of the things I've watched FTC do is not only do they take everything, but they prevent you from ever entering that industry or business again. That's right. They, they, they're in, in the final order, which is in most cases done by agreement, by settlement, 
or even if it's contested, the final order of the court usually has uh, fines that are very, very hefty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they also have an injunction in joining you from ever doing the things that, that they complained of in the original complaint that was the lawsuit, right? And then the third one, and a lot of people have no idea what this one's all about. They have, they impose on you what is known as compliance re- uh, reporting and the, 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 the time span in the last few years, uh, Frank Kern was nailed back in the Wild Wild West 2001. I think they only imposed five years of compliance reporting on him. But now, since we've gotten into this new era of, uh, since 2009, it's 10 to 20 years. Oh. And, the, and, and people, people say, well, now, wait, what, what is this, what's involved in that? I say, well, it's like you get audited by the Internal Revenue Service in the United States every year for 20 years. Oh, shoot me. I, I, mean, I mean, come <laughs> on. I mean, so, so, I mean, it's so bad. It's yeah. so terrible. So, you know, when you look at the horrible consequences, even though it might not happen to you, uh, compliance is really the, the way to go. Okay, so so now that we, now that we've scared the Jesus out of our listeners, <laughs> uh, let, let's talk about some ways to actually prevent this from happening. So let, let's talk about list building because I mean, if there's one thing you know, I'm always teaching. I do every every smart marketer out there is building lists, and you know, we we run over to lead pages, sign up for an AWeber account, we start start building lists and sending emails without a lot of thought, or and you know, maybe we think, oh, I need a privacy policy, so I go up there. And I get you know grab the the canned privacy policy, throw it on my page without really reading it, um, and away we go. Right, probably not the uh, best approach. So what what do we need to know here? Well, um, lead lead build uh, list building, uh, generally speaking, involves a squeeze page or squeeze pages, right? Where you're giving away something for a name and an email address to build the list, and. So there is a privacy issue, and the, and the reason there's a privacy issue is that whenever you collect a single element of personal information, then you're required to have a privacy policy. So that means simply a, an email address or a name or both, which is typically what you do on a squeeze page. So that triggers the obligation for a privacy policy. So what is, what, what is required generally for a privacy policy? It generally describes the information you collect, not only personal, but usage data. You know, the data, you know, the, the clickstream data, right? Mm-hmm. Personal information, usage data, how you collect it, how you use it, and how you share it with others. That's basically it. Now, there's some other requirements that don't fall within that little logical sequence. For example, if you're involved in retargeted ads, there are some other disclosures that the Federal Trade Commission requires, uh, in addition to the major um, the major platforms like Google and and Facebook. I mean, they have their own requirements, and if you don't follow them and don't have your privacy policy up to speed, they can turn they can ban you, right, and all that sort of stuff. So so you have to have a privacy policy that says what you do and what you don't do. We don't we don't share your information, or we. We, you know, we, we do share it with joint venture partners, all these things. So here's the problem. You've, a, you've got to have it, it being a privacy policy if you collect the information. B, you've get, I just described in very general terms what it needs to say. Now, here's the catch. 
in the process of describing these things, you actually say we do things and we don't do things regarding your information, right? Mm -hmm. The FTC views those statements about what you do and what you don't do as promises. And if you don't keep your promise, it's regarded as a deceptive marketing practice, which is grounds for a lawsuit. Right. Yeah. So, you see, I mean, you see the whole chain. You collect the personal information. You got to have a privacy policy. But if you don't keep your promises in the privacy policy, you can get sued. Right. Right. So, so that's important. Here is a tip that I see, I see violated a lot, and and it's it sort of goes back, sort of to a tradition that started back in the wild wild west days, and that is at the very bottom where of a squeeze page where the person is putting in their first name and their email address, right? And there's a submit button, right? Uh, right under that submit button is usually, we respect your privacy. We will never sell or rent your, um, your we will never sell your information, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's not, I mean, you, you certainly uh, share it with joint venture partners, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and and if you sell your online business, you're going to sell it, right? Of course. I mean, they've, they, there have been cases where where businesses were not allowed to be sold because of statements like this. So you should mm. never say we're going to never sell your information. Yeah. It sounds it sounds good at, below the submit button. What you should do is simply put a link to your privacy policy and let it speak for itself. Yeah. Right. Don't get out on the limb and say, we're not going to ever sell your information because it can really come back to haunt you. There are all sorts of ways you could end up selling it. So uh, so that's one thing. Um, and then, of course, once you've built the list, um, you know, then you use email to a certain extent. Uh, and the can spam law in the U.S. is fairly easy to comply with. And if you use any of the major platforms, they comply for you, right? Yeah. They have the unsubscribe and all of that. Uh, but in Canada, the Canada, the Canadian anti-spam law, C-A-S-L, mm -hmm. has some requirements for um, uh, affirmative consent to be on the list. Yeah. Right? Which is not the case with the U.S. approach. The U.S. approach is you can opt out by unsubscribing. I mean, so in Canada, you've got to, even to, to be on the list, you've got to give consent. So that's a whole different approach. Uh, and it's going to get some serious, it's going to get some U.S. marketers in trouble. Um, so one thing U.S. marketers need to do is to separate out people from Canada and either comply with CASL or don't, don't send them email. Right. And and you're referring to um, effectively a confirmed or double opt-in if you're marketing to Canadians, is that correct? I think I think most double opt-ins would comply yes. probably with their affirmative consent. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. So so yeah. Okay. So that's that's a tough one compared to US. US is easy. Yeah. I mean, you can send you can send the email as long as there are certain rules followed and there's an unsubscribe link. Right? Yeah. So so you got that, and then you got um, – well, I'm not even going to get into text and telephone. That's, that's a separate <laughs> issue. Um, and, and, of course, once you start marketing with that email list, then you get into advertising because you're making claims about a product or service uh, that are hopefully going to lead people to uh, taking you up on a call to action, right? That's what it's all about, yeah. isn't it? And so is the claim deceptive? 
You know, that's another mm-hmm. issue. So that's the whole sort of a real quick summary of what we're talking about from the very beginning of the process of, of collecting and building names and email addresses and building a list to actually using the list uh, in an outbound marketing uh, campaign. Got it. Okay, so uh, now anything else on list building? Because I want to I want to shift to another disclaimer. I have a question about. I think I think we probably covered enough on list building at this juncture. What else do you? Uh, okay, what are, okay, so the other disclaimer that's that's a bit of a question mark, and I see it kind of used all over, is the affiliate disclaimer. And so, if you're recommending products as an affiliate and you're taking commission. What is your uh, obligation to disclose that? If you are the affiliate, um, you are regarded as an endorser mm-hmm. by the Federal Trade Commission, right? You are basically pitching things to, to the public. Mm-hmm. Then, then you have an obligation to disclose what the FTC says is a, quote, material relationship with the merchant that you represent, mm-hmm. right? And the idea is that if the merchant is paying you an affiliate commission, or even if you're not being paid, if you're a blogger that does who does reviews and you've gotten a free iPad or a free iPhone to review and say nice things about, mm-hmm. right, then you need to disclose it. And the idea is if, if you are a consumer, uh, you would probably want to know if an endorser might have been influenced by a payment or receiving some sort of benefit. Right. And that has to be disclosed. And there's really no magic uh, disclaimer that, you know, it can be pretty simple. And, and if you read the FTC rules, I mean, it's basically, you know, you can just Apple gave me a free iPad for this to, to review. I mean, yeah, <laughs> pretty simple. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or or just the words compensated affiliate. Now, is it right? is it adequate to just simply have a link or an affiliate disclaimer in the footer of, say, every page, like many people do, that say, hey, occasionally I recommend products, and when I recommend a product, uh, I may be getting compensated for that as an affiliate, and then having that as a generalization? Or do you need to, um, in the FTC's eyes, is the best practice every time you recommend something to have a have a specific thing for that recommendation? Yeah, I mean, you could – I mean – obviously it doesn't hurt to have this notice at the bottom of every page and at the bottom of every email you send out that's promoting something if you're an affiliate. But the FTC wants you to be very careful about being conspicuous so that a consumer doesn't have to hunt for this disclaimer, right? And so the the concept that I, that, that I think they want and that I see is if you look at native ads, and I read articles a lot online, and, you know, the middle of an article, there'll be an ad, mm-hmm. you know, a little video or something, and it always says advertisement or sponsored ad. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and it's just, just, just a one or two words that make it very, very clear that this is not content. You know, you're reading – an article which is supposed to be supposed to be content, and now you're seeing in the middle of it, uh, or every other paragraph, you see an ad, but it says sponsored ad, advertisement, sponsored content, and so yeah. it's right there, right there on top of the ad is where you see it, right? Uh, and in many cases, like on BuzzFeed, uh, they they've been, you know, it's it's hard to spot their ads in in their feed sometimes, but they've got this little, I think, a little yellow thing that says ad. Mm-hmm. Some, I think it might need to be a little larger in some cases, but it's there. And so all you have to do is 
just put the words compensated affiliate because the word compensated is is pretty much enough. It it alerts the the, the person's eye can see it. Okay, the guy's been paid. Compensated affiliate, you know, right next to uh, the the promotional piece, right is probably going to be what they require. And if you if you're trying to get away with just putting the general notice at the bottom of the page, you know, and they see that they may go find the guy who doesn't have any notice and sue him. But it's not. It's not what they want. They want to see it very closely related in terms of of spacing mm-hmm. uh, to the actual uh, the actual endorsement. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So so now let's shift from specific policies. Let's talk about some of the hot areas right now. Where are they focusing today? Because I mean, the internet is no longer just email. You have social. You have all the native advertising. You have all these different things. Where are they really spending their time? Well, it used to be. Well, they still are. They're sort of some traditional areas. Uh, one of the hottest areas in the last few years has been membership or subscription sites that have a continuity billing plan, which is a plan usually you know charged on a monthly basis until the customer opts out. So if you really want to make a lot of money uh, and violate the Rosca statute, <laughs> what what you do is you create a free product that then, you know, tricks people into, into a transition into a paid, a paid, uh, continuity plan. And they don't know they're in the plan. If they don't review their, uh, their credit card statement carefully, they don't, you know, they, they don't notice it for a pretty good while. Right. And so the classic case is to sell an ebook for uh, give a, an ebook away for free, which is physical. It's not downloadable, right? And they have to. They, they say the book is free, but we need a credit card to take care of uh, shipping and handling, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the credit card number, and then in the fine print you say we also are going to give you a free membership. Uh, let's say the ebook. This is a Commerce Planet case. The ebook was how to make money selling stuff on eBay. Mm-hmm. And then the coaching program or the membership is we'll give you more information, you know, on a paid membership basis on how to do it. Um, but, you know, the fact that the free membership turned into a a build membership after 30 days was sort of hidden. Right. <laughs> so right. Yeah. Somebody jumped in on the free thing and didn't realize. And so the uh, U.S. Congress passed the Rosca statutes, and now there's some very serious disclosure requirements up front so that people know that they're getting into something like that. Uh, all this work-at-home stuff, biz ops, that's been regulated as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then anything involving weight loss and health claims, that sort of thing, has been well litigated. So those are sort of the more traditional hotspots. But the newer hotspots involve... Um, online influencers on social media where where you don't have the right disclosure. I mean, somebody might think it's just a just a, a, a comment, but it's really a, 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 a an ad without you know proper proper notif- proper disclosure, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Native ads is hot. There's just some new regulation out on that. Um, and so uh, so the internet, um, in, using influencers, there was a big case that was decided last year where uh, the where Microsoft had uh, a, a an advertising agency who then hired another agency below them who then hired some guys who were influencers to create YouTube videos uh, touting the the launch of the Xbox One by Microsoft, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have all these guys, these game guys 
doing all these terrific videos on YouTube, but they didn't disclose that they were paid to create the videos. Mm. It gave what rise to the lawsuit against the company that hired them, but didn't didn't monitor and manage them and tell them they had to, you know, provide the notice. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But it's interesting that the FTC did not sue Microsoft and its ad agency at the top of the chain because they, they the FTC said that these two, Microsoft and Starcom was the agency, had in place a, a very, they used the word robust FTC compliance program that had, you know, educated their employees and the people they outsourced to about compliance and therefore they weren't liable. Really? Yeah. So, so what the FTC is doing, this is really interesting and it's all very new is that they're going all the way up the chain. We talked about it in terms of affiliates just a few minutes ago, right? Mm -hmm. And now we're talking about it in terms of, um, uh, endorsements in, in social media, in this case, uh, YouTube. Right. Mm -hmm. so, so they look up at the top of the chain. They would like to have sued Microsoft. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, deep pockets. You can nail them for multiple millions of dollars and it's pocket change to Microsoft. Right. Yeah. You could do that. But then the FTC is saying, look, if you get religion, so to speak, about compliance and educate your employees and if you outsource some of your uh, online marketing, particularly um, uh, social media marketing. If you if you also advise your ad agency that you expect them to follow the rules, right? If you're doing all of these things, if you basically create a culture of of compliance, then if people below you screw up and we sue them, we're not you can't we're not going to hold you responsible for every screw up. Right. If you if you have the program in place and it's robust. Yeah, that makes and so. It's almost like an insurance policy. If yeah. you get serious about compliance, you're you're almost bulletproof. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that makes sense. I, you know, the little voice in the back of my head says, "If it wasn't Microsoft, would they have tried to sue?" Well, they love suing the big guys. Yeah, they I really, guess they really do, don't they? So yeah, that they was, do. Yeah, they they they've kicked Google around a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and, yeah. So yeah, they love those, and uh, but you know the bigger companies have finally gotten religion, and so to speak, yeah. and and they are doing what the FTC wants done. It's the smaller and the middle-sized guys who haven't figured it out yet mm -hmm. that you know need to understand that if they go, if if they create this culture and do the things that are the new the new the new regulations, then. You know they're almost insulated from claims because if somebody below them gets caught, they're not going to be sued. And that's what the, there's a letter from the FTC complimenting uh, Microsoft and Starcom and saying, you know, we we didn't bring an action because they had compliance programs. Right. So, okay. That very very interesting. Very interesting. And all this is really new stuff in the last year. Yeah. Right. We're not talking about three or four years ago. This is all 2015, basically 2015 and 2016. Right. So, okay, so compliance programs, stuff like that. I mean, you know, my listeners here, they're small businesses. There's, you know, the solo entrepreneurs and stuff like that. And they're like, yeah, what's, they don't have the bandwidth nor the resource to have them a monstrous, you know, compliance program. What do online marketers, the small guys do to protect themselves going forward? 
Well, the best thing, in, in my humble opinion, um, is to be a member of FTCGuardian.com. I'm a co-founder along with my partner, Alan Cutts, who's a marketer guy. Um, and uh, it's great for me as an attorney who does the content. You know, I do webinar presentations and on stage and I write articles, et cetera. But there needs to be a marketer guy that's sort of managing things and marketing things, right? That mm -hmm. I'm not as, you know, he's really good at it. So it's a great partnership. But here, here's the deal. Um, this is really the only cost-effective way that a small business can, can get access to what is going on and the tools and the training to be compliant. It is it. I mean, it used to be that there were some websites out there where you could download a privacy policy and the, the watchword was set it and forget it. You know, just put these disclaimers up there, slap this privacy policy on the site and you're good to go. You don't have to think about it. Well, those were, that was before 09. I mean, that was, that's sort of the wild, wild west mindset if you want to even think about compliance at some <laughs> yep. low level, right? <laughs> now, set it and forget it is going to get you sued probably. So, right. so at FTC Guardian, we've got all of the documents uh, through it with a generator that I created. It's not cookie cutter and it's used, it uses the technology known as rule-based document assembly, which I use in my law practice. I make it available to members, it's 85, 86 documents, it's not four or five. Um, so we got the documents, we've got the training videos and some other materials, but one thing we have that really, really is getting us rave reviews from members is twice a month, in fact, we had one last night, for members, we have a, a uh, Google Hangout live where I present a topic very focused, usually about 20 minutes. It's not one of these long, long webinar things. You know, it's not an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. um, it's 20 minute presentation on a very narrow topic. And then we open the, the line up for Q&A for 20 or 30 minutes. As long as people have questions, we'll stay on the line. And so it's a great opportunity for just very, very little cost and expense to, to have a shot at me, a full-time internet attorney, live twice a month to ask me questions, not only about the topic, but, you know, if you have questions outside the topic, we allow that as well. Um, and it's a great way to stay current because we talk a lot about new developments in those hangouts. So that's a real, um, that's a real valuable aspect. It's not just some here, here's some documents and here's some stuff. Mm -hmm. It's a great way to keep up with yeah. what's going on. And so we do twice a month uh, usually about the second week, and we had one last night, and we'll have one the third or fourth week of the month, and then we just keep rolling, and it's a great, the members love it, and we do, obviously, replay videos of those, so we post those in the members area uh, so that you can review them, you know, at your leisure. Right, yeah. So that is the recommendation, because it's not just about documents. Mm -hmm. You know, you just put that privacy policy up there, that's good, if it's a good one. But you need to know these rules, some of which we've talked about. You know, how what are the rules regarding testimonials and endorsements? Um, what is the rule about you know if you're if you're an affiliate manager, how do you manage them? What are you supposed to do? It's it's the knowledge of the rules of the road. You know, the strategies that you need to have in addition to the documents, and that's what we give you, particularly with the live uh, hangouts with at FTC Guardian, and so. Uh, one of the things we might mention here is that we offer a free blueprint um, that you can get that gives you all the steps necessary that we believe that are important to becoming compliant. 
And so if the link is FTC Guardian, F-T-C-G-U-A-R-D-I-A-N.com forward slash blueprint, one word, B-L-U-E-P-R-I-N-T. So if you go there, you can download that and that'll get you started. Fantastic. That's wonderful. Um, all right. So what I'll do, uh, Chip, is I will, uh, I'll include links to all of those in the show notes. So for all the listeners, you will find links to the Blueprint and, uh, and to Chip's site as well. And uh, is there anywhere else they can connect with you online, Chip? Well, there's, you can always check me out on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm a big LinkedIn. I'm a premium member. I really like it. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's great for what I do. Uh, and uh, I don't go by my real name. <laughs> in fact, really? <laughs> in fact, no one knows. I mean, my name, my name is Frederick L. Cooper the Third. Who knows? I mean, wow. <laughs> so, but I mean, I've been known as Chip Cooper all of my life, my yeah. entire life. So, uh, so just look for search for Chip Cooper on yeah. LinkedIn, and you'll see my uh, my profile there, and uh, and and ask to be connected, and I'll be happy to to accept that. So yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn, just search for Chip Cooper. And I don't even think the word Frederick L. Cooper is on the webs on, on the profile. <laughs> Nobody, no one would know who that person is anyway. Oh, that's right. great. That's great. I like the third too. That just adds a <laughs> oomph to it. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Well, Chip, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and giving our listeners uh, so much valuable insight and, and specific things that they can start doing to protect themselves. I really appreciate your time today. Well, thanks for having me, Derek. We appreciate it. Fantastic. All right, everyone, that was FTC expert and attorney Chip Cooper. And as always, any of the links that we just talked about will be included in the show notes. And I'd recommend you go check that out. Get get a link to the, uh, the blueprint that he recommended there. And uh, check out FTC Guardian to make sure you are protected going forward. And uh, as always, uh, if you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or even on Stitcher. Your feedback and reviews is what keeps me going. It gives me the momentum gives me the motivation to continue making this the best info-packed podcast for digital entrepreneurs. And now, time to take those tools, tips, and strategies, apply the final ingredient that's going to actually make them work for you, and that is action. So get out there. Make sure you're compliant. Make sure your policies are in place. Make sure you know what you're doing so uh, you don't have to be one of those stories uh, of uh, FTC um action. Nobody wants that. So go forth, take action, make your lives and business extraordinary. This is your host, Derek Gale, signing off. Thanks for listening to another info-packed episode of the Entrepreneur Ignited podcast with Derek Gale. For links to all of the resources plus an entire transcript of this episode, go to entrepreneurignited.com slash podcast. Make sure you never miss another episode. Subscribe now on iTunes or SoundCloud.